It's good to be back again with you guys one more time. And uh, if this is a first time or first time in a long time, just want to welcome you back. We're actually wrapping up a series here in the past, uh, in the next couple of weeks. We started way back in the fall called The Big Story of Scripture, where we are going through exactly that, the big story of Scripture. Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories uh, that are tying the one big story of Scripture all together. And so this morning we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, really the first seven verses. And so if you have your Bible want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do so. Uh, if you do not, no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen uh, for us this morning. Um, how many of you guys, real quick, are, are big fans of the Olympics? I know we just wrapped up. The, I'm talking about the real Olympics, not the winter, what we just passed up, like the summer stuff, the, the things that uh, America is actually pretty good at, I guess. Um, I was checking out an article a little while ago. Yeah, massive fail in the Winter Olympics, wasn't it? Um, anyway, I was reading this article a little while ago. It was talking about some of the highlights and some of our biggest triumphs and disasters throughout time. But it was talking about the, the 2016 Olympics, um, obviously most recently. And I don't know if you guys remember this whole thing, but like it was talking about our 4x100 relay team and how typically we're pretty dominant in that, in that race. But in recent years, we've just not been... Exactly that. But anyway, 2016, we're going into the Olympics, and, uh, you know, the ladies were expected to dominate the entire thing, right? They're expected to shatter every single record, and they got off to a pretty decent start, but uh, um, in the prelims, things kind of quickly went south. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but um, they almost didn't even make it to the finals. Uh, Allison, I think her name is Allison Felix, she's off there going and and doing the handoff, and they're running around lap, or the uh, second handoff here. And uh, her arm gets bumped, and they drop the baton. And immediately right then in the prelims, I mean, they're disqualified from the entire race. This team that's expected to take home gold just disqualified just like that. And fortunately, they were able to look back at the replay and get a, a do-over because her arm was, her arm was, um, was uh, hit by somebody else. And so they came back around and ended up getting the gold medal. Uh, but they were almost disqualified just by dropping the baton just like that. Men's team kind of had a very similar thing happening in 2016. They weren't expected to win the gold because... Usain Bolt is just insane, and so the Jamaicans were going to win the entire thing, but they were expected to come into second, and of course, a very similar thing happened to them, too. They, they made it to the finals that year, uh, but, and they did okay. They ended up getting the, uh, qualifying for the bronze, but then shortly after the race was done, a very similar thing happened. They botched the handoff in the middle of the race, and they were in, ended up being disqualified from the whole thing, and so the article was just talking about the disaster of the handoff for the Americans, especially in recent years. Um, it continued to go on talking about the triumph of the Japanese. And I don't know if you guys remember this part of that part of the, the Olympics, but um, uh, the Japanese ended up getting a silver medal in the men's 4 by 100 relay that year. And uh, the fascinating thing about it was that they didn't even have one person on that relay team that even qualified for the finals in any sprint meet that entire year. And so I want you to see kind of what, here's what one of the U.S. track coaches had to say about that entire ordeal. I thought it was fascinating. He said, you take Bolt out of it, meaning you're saying Bolt and the Jamaicans. He said, we still would have been beaten by Japan. This is Mike Tucci, who had produced champion after champion, often by not even using his fastest runners. I thought that was interesting, too. Not a single man on Japan's second-place team made an individual sprint final at the Olympics, but they were still able to take silver because they mastered the art of the handoff. No wasted movements, no dropped batons, just perfect handoffs from one teammate to another. Isn't that fascinating? Not one person made the, the finals, but what the Japanese had figured out better than anybody else was the value of the handoff. How even one little glitch in the handoff from one person to the next, and how one dropped baton could potentially ruin the entire race. Uh, a little while ago, David Platt was preaching on the state of discipleship uh, in, in the United States of America today, and 
He dropped some statistics that I thought were incredibly alarming to me. But he was just talking about how his entire team had been doing this uh, project over the course of the past year or so, a nationwide project, and polling people about how closely people feel like they actually follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Came up with some interesting uh, statistics here, but they talked about how about 65% of people 65 years and older uh, at least identified and said that they closely follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, those are pretty encouraging numbers, right? 65%, majority of people over 65 closely walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Of those people between the ages of 35 and 64, it quickly diminished all the way down to 35%. People between the ages of 24 and 34, it dipped all the way down to 15%. And then even most alarming was people underneath those from the ages of 16 to 33. Only 5% of those polled acknowledged that they closely walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And granted, like, polls aren't perfect, right? There's going to be a a huge margin for error, but either way you look at it, church, we've got a handoff problem going on in the church today as we attempt to hand off the faith from one generation to the next. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to be dealing with in our passage this morning. So if if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, we're going to be emphasizing these first seven verses here. And all I want to do is look at Paul's instruction to his disciple Timothy and talk about uh, how we can go in and trust the faith well from generation to generation. While you're turning there, I want to remind us kind of where we are in this big story again. We've turned the page and uh, we're actually living now in the church age in this big story we're talking about. We are still in the church age today. Uh, And as Paul writes this letter to his disciple Timothy, uh, he's also beginning in the church age. And so this is the time that Jesus prepared his disciples for really, really well. You remember this back in Mark chapter 16. Um, It's just before Christ's crucifixion, and he's in this meeting room with his disciples, and they're a little bit panicky about what life is going to be like apart from Jesus. He's been telling them, I'm about to go away, go back home and be with my father. I'm going to be crucified and handed over. And they're terrified about what life is going to look like apart from Christ. And he says, don't be afraid because when I go, uh, the Holy Spirit will come. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit inside of you is actually going to be better. It's going to be better for you to have the Spirit inside of you than even me standing right here beside you. And of course, that's the entire testimony of everything that we're seeing take place in the book of Acts and there on after as the Holy Spirit comes there at Pentecost. And so Pentecost happens. Acts chapter 2, it's about 50 days after the resurrection. Uh, the Spirit comes and fills the entire gathering of Jesus' followers 50 days after the resurrection. There's incredible signs and wonders taking place. They're speaking in, in tongues and healings and all these different things. The gospel's being proclaimed. And it just says over and over again throughout the book of Acts that the Lord just keeps adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And that's when the early church is first born, right? There's nothing fancy about the early church. There's nothing, uh, as if you've ever been around any kind of a church plant. It's always tough. It's always rough and just a grassroots movement at the very beginning. It's, take, it's exactly what's happening there in the book of Acts. But all it is is a bunch of spirit-filled believers that are gathering together uh, for the sake of building one another up. And they're doing it through a commitment to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, uh, to fellowship, and to the Lord's Supper. And so very much a grassroots movement there at the very beginning. Well, shortly after that, the Apostle Paul comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And 15 years after that, he starts taking missionary journeys in order to plant churches all around the world. It's on a second missionary journey uh, in about 49 AD uh, in Philippi that Paul is out there uh, spreading the gospel when he meets this young guy named Timothy. Uh, We find out from the text that Timothy is already a believer at that point in time. His dad is a Greek, which means he's probably not a believing person at that point in time, but he has faithful parents. He has a faithful mom who's entrusted the faith to him and a faithful grandmother also. 
and uh, they were believing Jews that passed along the faith to Timothy. So Paul and Timothy meet there in Philippi about 49 AD. And for the next 13 years, uh, Timothy just follows Paul everywhere that he goes. 13 years of just helping him plant churches and, and preach and share the gospel and all these different kinds of things. And so you got to understand, like when Paul is writing this letter to his disciple Timothy, he's writing to a dear friend. Like this isn't just a stranger. This isn't an, an impersonal letter to a church. He's writing this letter uh, to a very, very dear friend, somebody that he's mentored and brought up in the faith for a very long time. Uh, he's also writing to a very young pastor. About four years before this, is, I think this is written around 67 uh, 67 AD, about four years before that, uh, the Apostle Paul dropped off Timothy in Ephesus and said, you're now the new pastor of the church here in Ephesus. I want you to help raise these early gatherers and, uh, and help them grow up in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's a young pastor and a brand new, relatively new church plant going on there in Ephesus. And it's not like anything that we've experienced around here. Like here at DBC, people are really nice uh, they're very encouraging to young pastors, and it's not like what Timothy had to experience there. This is a time in the first century that was very hostile to the spread of the gospel. I mean, Paul's going to be writing this letter from prison because he'd been preaching the gospel and helping establish a church. So you can imagine, like, that's the world that they're living in. For a young pastor there in Ephesus, very difficult times. There's a lot of uh, false teachers that are rising up in the church. There's battles for doctrine. Right? They don't have their own personal word of God. There's not a whole lot of accountability there. And there's a lot of mess that's going on in the early church. And so that's what's taking place as Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy's exhausted and he's tired. And Paul's writing from prison, mind you. And he's writing to his young disciple and friend, Timothy, to encourage him with a few things and remind him of the things that are most important as he labors in the work of the gospel. And that's where I want to pick it up here in verse 1. Check out what he says right here. He says, You then, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I know that you're tired. I know that you're exhausted. I know that there's persecution and opposition all around you. Don't be strong in yourself. Uh, don't take courage in your ability to argue and get yourself out of these different situations. Be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reminded that victory has already been won through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reminded that there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Okay, so if you're a note taker, you actually have a, a physical Bible right there. Uh, you like taking notes, and I want you to take your pen and circle the word entrust that's right there. Um, the, the, we've talked about this before. We saw this all throughout Israel's history, right? They had a problem entrusting the faith. And there's an enormous difference between delivering the faith and entrusting it to the next generation right? Like delivering the faith is kind of like what you did if, um, if you had a, a newspaper delivery route and you're a, a paper boy or something like that, paper girl. Anybody have that by, by any chance? You, you deliver newspapers as a kid, you made a few extra bucks. Yeah, okay. Um, I did this for a little while. My older brother did it. But uh, by the way, um, kids, like newspapers were kind of like a modern day iPad, except we cut down an entire rainforest in order to print them out and so we could read the news and stuff like that. That, that. That's what we did. But we'd get up early in the morning and we'd have this stack of papers. And it was our job to roll them up, put rubber bands around them. I'd throw them in a bike or uh, my brother's car or whatever. He'd drive me around and hang out the back. And like my entire job was to take that newspaper and throw it in the front yard of the person who subscribed to that paper. Like I had no idea if they were actually going to take that paper, read that paper. I did not care about that. And my only concern was that I delivered the news out there and I did my job. Very, very different from entrusting the faith, 
right? And trusting the faith is what you do when you're proposing to your spouse. Huge difference, right? Like when you're proposing to your spouse, like I want to make sure that that message is received. I'm not about to take this diamond ring, toss it in the front yard and be like, babe, I hope you get the message. Like we're in love and I want to do this thing forever. Like I'm not about to do it like that. Like when I proposed to my wife, I had the entire day planned out, right? Like detail after detail after detail. I had friends and family all participating in this thing. And I got down on a knee and I had this incredible speech that wowed her and brought her to tears, right? And, um, and I got down on a knee and I took out that diamond and I made sure that that diamond got on her finger. And she knew what I was asking her to do. And she received the entire message. And church, that's exactly what Paul is saying right here in this text. He's saying, don't just deliver the faith out there. Don't just take the hope of the gospel and spread it around and hope that people pick up on what you're trying to teach them to do. But entrust it faithfully to the next generation. And not only that, but he gets even more specific, and he says, entrust it to reliable people who will, be able, who will be qualified to entrust it to other people too, who will then also be able to take what's been entrusted to them and then entrust it to more people who are also reliable also. And then those people are going to be able to take what's been entrusted to them, and they're going to be able to entrust it to more and more people down the line. In other words, we can't just be content to make disciples, but we've got to be able to make disciples that are able to make more and more disciples that are able to go and make more and more disciples on down the line. Church, like that's how a movement spreads from nearly a thousand believers just after the time of Christ's resurrection to nearly 30 million people in the first 300 years after the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and the movement never ends. There's an incredible picture of this. I want to show you this Acts chapter 8. Um, this is, again, less than a year after the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is 50 days after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and so it's at the very beginning of this entire movement. Uh, Stephen had just become the first Christian martyr at this time, preaching the gospel. Like I said, major persecution taking place at this time. Stephen was the very first martyr. And uh, here's what it says in chapter 8. And Saul, who is the author of the, re- of, of, of the letter we're reading now, this is, pre, this is Paul pre-conversion, went by Saul. I want you to see who he is here. Saul approved of their killing him, okay? He was happy about Stephen's death, sicko. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Here, check this out, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered went and preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Church, that is how the gospel exploded upon the scene. It wasn't just the strength of the apostles and these incredibly gifted and anointed men and women who'd been around the life of Jesus Christ. It was, it was the people that they discipled, right? And it was the people that those disciples continued to disciple. It was men and women who'd been scattered around the world because of the persecution that was taking place. It was people like Philip in verse 5, like a normal lay person who was discipled by the apostles and then sent out on their behalf. He kept on preaching and he kept on healing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it just says that the Lord just kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Church, like that's how the whole thing went down. And the beauty of this whole scene is that the apostle Paul is there every step of the way. Like, he was there. He had, a, he had like, like, a front row seat to what was taking place in the beginning of the church. His name was Saul at the time. And 
The thing is, like, he hated this movement, and he was trying to do everything that he possibly could to kill this entire movement, persecuting Christians, throwing them into prison, celebrating when Stephen is put to death. That's Paul. But the problem was that every time he tried to stamp out this movement of what was going on here, like, the people just continued to spread. And it was like ants in a front yard. Like, they spread, and they just built new communities, and the gospel continued to spread out even more there. So, like, Paul tried to stamp out the entire thing, and every time he tried to stamp it all out, like, the gospel just flourished because these disciples are making disciples that are continuing to make more and more disciples. Church, do you think, like, anybody else has a better history of understanding the power of discipleship than the Apostle Paul? He tried to kill the entire thing, and, like, no matter how hard he tried, he's just like, they just keep growing. Because that's what we've been called to do, church. Like, we're not just out there delivering the faith and just kind of passively hoping, hey, I hope some people understand what's going on here. Like, I hope some people understand the beauty, the hope of of salvation that's there in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, we're entrusting it to reliable people who will also be qualified to entrust it to others. And those people will then be qualified to entrust it to others and we'll be able to make disciples that'll make disciples that'll keep making more and more disciples. And the beauty of what's taking place here and what, what Paul's saying here is that it's, it's not just my job. Like, it's not, just, it's not just Paul's job. It's not just Timothy's job. It's not just the vocational minister's job. It's the people that they've discipled and the people that those people discipled and the people that those people discipled. It's all of our job to continue in this form and fashion. He keeps going, and he gives us this picture about how we can entrust the faith really, really well. He says this in verse 2. Check this out. The things that you've heard me say... In the presence of many witnesses, and trust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, um, in other words, we can't just preach the gospel at all times and only use words when necessary. Like we've got to be able to know God's word, and we've got to be able to teach it and to trust God's truth from one generation to the next. And not just like little parts of it, not just memes that we see on Instagram, like little pithy sayings that are completely taken out of context that make us feel good, and all these different kinds of things. We're talking about the entirety of God's word. I mean, Paul's going to say, um, uh, everything that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful people who will be able to teach and entrust it to other people. I don't know if you know this, but like Paul wrote nearly half the New Testament. That's a lot of things that, that, that he heard him say in the presence of many witnesses. We're talking about Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, and there on down the line, like he wrote a lot of different things. And Jesus is going to come on the scene earlier than this, and he's going to up the ante even more. He's going to say, I want you to go into all the world, into all the nations, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the evangelistic push. Um, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Like, not just the Beatitudes, and not just these things over here that are still relevant to us today that we still, uh, that we still like, but like everything that I've commanded you to do, I want you to teach them and to trust these things to other faithful people who will be able to entrust those things on to other faithful people. In other words, it's an enormous amount of things we need to continue to entrust from generation to generation. And before we start to freak out about this, like we need to understand that blessing does not begin once we've figured the entire thing out. Like, that's not the call. Don't be frozen here. This is not just about, hey, you're 95 years old. You spent the entirety of your life reading and studying God's word, and so now you've got it figured out, and now you can be blessed. I mean, the, the, the psalmist is going to put it like this. He's going to say, um, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates on it day and night. In other words, that is where blessing is found. 
right? It does not begin once you've got the entire thing figured out, but blessing begins when the word of God is open and we're meditating on it day and night. When we got it opened up and I get up early in the morning and I'm reading it and just meditating on the truth and the beauty of God's word. And that's a problem for us today because um, if, if Barna stats are correct and we love God's word, we just don't really like reading it very much. Like a study came out in 2013, it talked about this, it said that 88% of Americans actually own a Bible. It's a lot of people that own a Bible. Average household owns four and a half Bibles. I don't know how you get half of a Bible. I guess that's the New Testament version, but um, four and a half Bibles in each household, right? Um, 80% believe it's sacred, that it's actually from God. That's a lot of people that believe the Bible is actually God's word, right? 61% say that they wish they read it more. But at the end of the day, only about 25% read it on a regular basis. 18% of that actually comes from being inside of a church and listening to it read for them, which means only about 7% are actually reading it on a regular basis for themselves. Church, like that's, that's an enormous problem, right? Like we love the word of God, we just don't love reading it for ourselves. Like there's another one done in January this past year said this. It said, more than half of all Americans, both teens, about 58% of them, and about 62% of adults agree with the statement that many religions can lead to eternal life, that there is no true religion, okay? Many religions can lead to eternal life, that there is no one true religion. Can we just think about that for a second, right? Um, 80% love the Bible and uh, believe that it actually comes from God. Nearly 60% identify as a Christ follower, a Christian, one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and we presume to be saved, right? Uh, but we don't even believe the most basic doctrines of the faith. I mean, Jesus is going to say, John 14, John 14, 6, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me, and we don't even believe that anymore. I, 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 we love God's word, we just don't love reading it. We love God's word, and we acknowledge these different things, but we don't have, let it have any authority in our life. Like Romans 3.23 is going to say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, like his life, death, and resurrection, it wasn't just an example for how we should love other people. Like it wasn't just this picture of divine love or something like that, although it may actually be that. There was so much more that was taking place upon that cross. It says that we, that we are all justified, meaning we've been declared righteous freely by his grace, his undeserved favor to us um, that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In other words, church, like there was a transaction that was taking place on that cross. Like it was our guilt, it was our sin that was being handed over to Christ and being absorbed by him and he was transitioning his righteousness to any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith. And we have no idea the content of the most basic tenets of our faith because we love God's word, we just don't love reading it. Like we love the idea of it, we love having it on the table there and stuff, but there's no way in the world I'm about to open it up and meditate on it day in and day out and let it have any kind of weight or authority inside of my life. It continued to go on, and I love this one. It, it, Generation Z, it says, uh, there's a sense among Gen Z that what's true for someone else may not be true for me. We've heard this, right? They're much less apt than older adults, especially boomers, 85%, to agree that a person can be wrong about something that they sincerely believe in. For a considerable, considerable amount of teens, sincerely believing something makes it true. Can we think about that for a second? sincerely believing something makes it true. It's absolute nonsense, church. 
It's absolutely nonsense, and we're believing this kind of thing because we've stopped teaching the truth. We've stopped passing on the truth of God's word from one generation to the next. We're, we're tickling ears, and we're, we're saying, oh, that, okay, great. For the sake of passivity and for the sake of peace, we are crippling this next generation because we stopped teaching the truth of God's word. I mean, we, we've got to understand every single day we are being fed by the world with a fire hose. We've got to get that, right? Like every single day we are being fed every single day, whether we are thinking about it, being proactive about it or not. Like you're going to wake up tomorrow, and if it's an average day, you're going to be subjected to about three to 5,000 different advertising messages in your normal day. And we're talking about billboards and advertisements and commercials and internet and social media and all these different venues that are going on. Three to 5,000 advertising messages that are telling you no matter what you have, you still need more. And then you're going to come home and like the TV is going to be on for about five hours on average. And you're going to have internet up and some sort of access to the internet for about eight hours every single day. And we're going to be thinking it's harmless, but it's not actually harmless, right? Like there's nothing harmless about what's taking place. Um, Nearly 80% of men... 55% of women are going to go and intentionally look at pornography in the next six months. And again, you're going to go, go, okay, well, that's just what guys do. It's just what people are doing nowadays. I'm in the majority. I'm in the norm. Like, okay, this isn't that unusual. We're going to think that it's actually harmless because we're going to believe certain things like I can look, but I just can't touch. And we're going to think, okay, well, everybody else believes that. And we're going to think that it's absolutely harmless. And what we're not going to understand is that while we are doing that, it is increasing our chances of marital infidelity by 300%. It's not harmless. Like 62% of teens and young adults have participated in sexting. Right? And you're kind of like, what, what is that? Like, meaning, literally, uh, they have received a sexually explicit image from someone that they know in a personal manner, or else they've sent the same to someone else that they know. Like, I would be alarmed if it was 1%. Right? And it's just normal. It's normal. It's all over the place. And here it, is, it keeps going. Like if you're a high school graduate, uh, you spent 15,000 hours of your life learning in a secular classroom and being graded solely upon your performance. Performance is everything. Did you get an A? Why not an A plus? And that's okay. I mean, there's a part that's, that's fine about that, right? Like if you've got a job, you desire to be promoted, that is also going to be done on the basis of your performance. Again, which is fantastic as long as it stays in that realm. But as soon as it starts translating into the ways that we think about God and, and, and as soon as we start thinking that our entire identity and approval before God is also based upon our performance, it's an enormous, enormous problem. I want to show you this. I, I've shared this, this quote from uh, Madonna in an article by Vogue magazine a number of times, but I think it perfectly illustrates this problem. Madonna, one of the most successful people in the world today. Here's what she says. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. It's what's always pushing me. Some days I'm able to push past one spell of it and discover that I'm actually a special human being, but then I feel mediocre again and uninteresting unless I do something else. Even though I've become somebody and accomplished a lot I still feel like I have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Church of Oprah said the exact same thing. Probably the most, one of the most successful people on this planet said the exact same thing. I discovered that I really don't feel like I'm worth a darn, certainly not worthy of love unless I'm accomplishing something great. Church, how in the world did we get there? Like how, like how in the world do we, be, do we start believing this? Like everything that we need is right here in God's word. While we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Like while we were still sinners in God's infinite love, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live this sinless life that we could not live, that we may be declared righteous before him when we come to him in genuine faith. Like, like we're infinitely loved by God. 
As many as have received unto them, he's given the right to be called children of God. Church, how in the world did we get there? Like it makes absolutely no sense except that we've stopped teaching the truth from one generation into the next. The psalmist is going to put it like this, Psalm 78. My people hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. I can just imagine that the psalmist is crying this out. He's saying, people, listen, please. Like, seriously, listen. Don't let this be one of these Sundays where you kind of come in and just go through the motions and, and, and immediately just discard it so we can get the lubies and, and have the jello and stuff. But, like, like, he's begging. He's saying, like, my people hear my teaching. Listen to the words out of my mouth. We are going to tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and his wonders that he has done. We've got to tell the next generation. The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders that he has done. He has decreed statues from Jacob and established the law in Israel. Which he commanded our ancestors to teach to their children. So that the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. So they can put their trust in God and faithfully keep his commands. Church, I praise God every single day for, for parents that, that, that believed God's word and knew how to entrust it to us. I, I don't know what your experience was. I, I praise God for this testament. I remember even in elementary school, I remember getting up early in the morning. You remember the, the ridiculous hours that make you go to school when you're in kindergarten, right? It's like 7 a.m. We remember getting up really, really early. And like my mom would already be in her study, studying the word of God. Like her, her study was next to my room and I would get up and and the door would be kind of cracked, and I'd open up, and she'd just be devouring God's word. And I'd get up in the middle of the night sometimes, like 3 a.m., and I'd go down the stairs to go get a glass of water. And, and Dad would be there at the dining room table, and he'd have this blanket over his head. And he'd have no idea that I was around there, and he'd have the Bible open up on his table. And he'd just be reading the word of God, and he'd be praying out loud. And I'd just sit there in the kitchen a number of times and just listen to him pray for his family. And I remember, like, this is our thing back, like, growing up. Like, it didn't matter what we were doing in the evenings, but, like, you knew that you're coming home and you're having dinner together as a family. And so, like, that time together as a family, like, that was sacred. And we would come home every night, and it uh, didn't matter. My mom wasn't the greatest cook. That has nothing to do with my story. Um, <laughs> but, like, we would come home, and, like, we'd eat together as a family. And, and it didn't matter what was going on that evening. Like, at the end of, all, at the end of pretty much every meal, like, we would have family devotions, and I hated this time. Can I just be honest? I hated this time. Like, it didn't matter what we were doing. I would, I would have people spending the night with me, and we'd be hanging out, have my friends over, and, and they're like, okay, you're not getting up from the table yet. Aaron, here, it's your turn. Here's the Bible. Let's open up here, and I want you to read this little section here. I was like, Mom, I complained every moment of that time. Embarrassed. Mom, you're lame. Nobody does this with their friends around you. And they make us read it out loud with the family, and we just talk about it, and they say, what do you think that means? And we, you know, they push us a little bit more because we had no idea how to say anything that made sense and we didn't want to. And, and they, just got, they just made us, we just talked about it over and over again. And it was really, really funny as years later, I'm talking with those friends that were over all the time. They're like, you remember what your parents would always do? They would always just open up the Bible. We loved coming over and hearing your parents and your family talk about God's word. I hated it the entire time and they were taking notice. When I was 15 years old and God actually got a hold of my affections as a young student at that time, you know what, you know what took place? I, I, I can remember I was coming off of, a, of a Enchanted Rock in this camp that we were doing for, young, for, uh, for the youth group. And I came home and God just got a hold of my affections for the very first time. And I remember going back to my bedroom every single night just devouring God's word. I was hungry. And with church, when you're hungry, the only thing that makes sense to do is to eat. 
Like, and I just came back and just started devouring God's word. And I didn't know it. I didn't understand everything. I just started reading and writing things down and then going and asking people, church, where did that begin? It began in those years when I'm just complaining about it at the table. My parents are faithfully teaching and they're faithfully entrusting the truth of God's word from one generation to the next. And I was debating it the whole time and I didn't want anything to do with it. But church, like God's word was taking root. It's what it does. Like Isaiah 55 says his word goes out and it never returns void. Like the author of Hebrews is going to say that, that uh, the word of God is living and then it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, meaning it's not just a book. Like it's not just a novel that you read for fun and entertainment. Like it's, it's living and it's breathing and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both bone and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart, meaning it's able to come in and take root inside of a child. And it's able to stay there and grow over years until it's time to come to fruition. That is what's taking place. It is the word of God being from, entrusted from one generation to the next. Church, real quick, how many of you guys had somewhat of a similar experience? You had parents, you had people around you that were faithfully entrusting it, doing the best that they could at some point in time or another. You probably didn't even want to go to church, but you're dragged along there anyway. Yeah. Look where you are now. Look where you are now. You're here. You're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ because of what some, something that took place long ago, probably when you were protesting the entire time. Parents, you can never, ever, ever, ever stop entrusting the truth of God's word to the next generation that's living inside your home. Church body, I don't care if you've got kids or not. Like church body, like we can never, ever, ever stop entrusting the truth of God's word to the people that are around you and to the next generation no matter what's going on around us. We cannot just go and have fun. We cannot just go and play games. We've got to faithfully entrust the truth of God's word from one generation to the next so they don't think about Jesus as just some sort of an example of love that they recognize the transaction that took place upon that cross for you and for me. He keeps going. Verse 3, um, I love this. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's it. Very simple instruction. Speaking to Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Also, if you're a note taker, please circle the words join me. Join me. You want to know how to make disciples and entrust the faith from one generation to the next? Get great at saying those two words. Join me. Join me. You don't know how to pray? Join me. We'll, we'll pray together. I'll teach you. You don't know how to read the word of God? Join me. We'll, we'll, we'll learn to read the word of God together. You don't know how to go and share your faith. We, we do it as a church every fourth Sunday. We, we go into the community and we teach you how to do it. Just join me. Like, I'm terrible at it, but just join me. We're going to go and we'll do it together. Like, you don't know how to understand the difficulties of this, this passage that you're reading over here. Join me. I know how to Google a few things. I know how to talk to different people. And I don't know the, all the answers right here, but just join me. We'll figure it out together. Like, you don't know how to love people well, join me. Come over to my house. Eat dinner with my family, and you'll see the dysfunction that's around here and stuff, and you'll, you'll, you'll think, oh, my gosh, they don't have everything together. And that'll be okay. We'll talk about what it looks like to love people well. You don't know how to give your life away for the sake of the gospel. Join me. We'll go serve at the homeless shelter downtown. We'll go over to our food pantry over there. We'll go volunteer. We'll, we'll give our life for the sake of these refugees that are here in Dallas trying to figure out how to do life well. Just join me. It's all Paul is doing with Timothy here in this text. Timothy, like, you don't know what to do in the face of opposition. Like, you don't know what to do when it's really, really hard and there's, there's persecution all around you. Just join me in suffering. 
like a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but he rather he tries to please his commanding officer. Anyone in here ever serve in the military? Praise God for you people. Gave your life for our freedom. Had a roommate and good friend in college that was kind of halfway through college, and it's when he got up and um, decided to go join the Marines. And uh, this is a guy that was kind of a kind of wandering throughout the college years, pudgy guy. We had a lot of fun together and everything. And he came back a year later, didn't even recognize who he was anymore. The dude had like better abs than Batman, right? Like it was just giant, unbelievable, just ripped like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he came back with a determination and a discipline to his life that we'd never seen anywhere before. And I love, we asked him, we're like, bro, what in the world took place this past year? I love his response. He just goes, there's no distractions. No distractions. Every single day was about the mission that was right there before us. We did push-ups, all the sit-ups, all the running, all the swimming, all the yelling, all the screaming, all the sleepless nights. It was all about the mission that was right there before us. And it's exactly what Paul is saying to his young disciple, Timothy, here. No distractions, Timothy. No distractions. Like, yeah, following Jesus is really, really, really difficult. So don't get distracted. Just join me, and we're going to suffer well together. Similarly, in verse 5, he says, Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Anyone else here a world-class athlete? Just kidding. What? Um, yeah, he says, An athlete doesn't win the crown unless they compete according to the rules. Church, like, what are the rules of following Jesus? What are the rules that he lays out? It's pretty much Luke chapter 9, verse 23, right? He says to them, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. Like That's the rule of being a disciple. You don't get to claim to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ without denying yourself, taking up your cross every single day, and following him. In other words, what he's saying is it's not going to always be easy. Like There's going to be opposition all around you, but if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's actually definition of that word, by the way. Right? Like we don't get to define in our own image how we want things, but like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is to follow in his footsteps, which led to a cross, which is full of incredible amounts of persecution and suffering. And what he's saying is, if you want to be a disciple of mine, then you've got to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross every single day, and, and follow me. And it's exactly what he's saying. It's, it, it's why he uses these images. Soldiers and athletes and farmers, like they get the difficulty of following Jesus. Like farmers in the next verse, like they, they don't just toss out seed and, and hope it takes. Right? They're out there every single day. They, they toss out the seed and they're watering the soil and, and, and they're raking the ground. And like they're making sure that the harvest comes about. Like They're working day in and day out, morning, noon, and night. It's the same thing with an athlete like Michael Phelps. Like he's eating 12,000 calories a day. And some of you are like, I'm there. Like I, I do 12,000. I got the 12,000. The difference is the dude is working out six days a week over six hours at every single day doing weightlifting, swimming 50 miles a week because that's what it takes to be a world-class athlete, church. And it's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage right here. Following Jesus, there's nothing easy about it. Like, there's nothing easy about it all the time. Like, it's difficult. There's, there's demands there. Following him is 24-7. It's seven days a week. It's constantly surrendering to the Holy Spirit in my life. It is resisting sin and dying to myself and, and walking by faith and living for the good of other people who will oftentimes turn around and hate you for that, which is exactly what's taking place with Timothy, right? It's exactly what's taking place with Paul. Like, following Jesus has landed him in prison for the sake of the gospel, and all he says here is, join me. I know that it's hard, Timothy. I know that following Jesus is not the easiest thing in the world. 
I know that you're struggling. I know that you're tired. I know that you're exhausted. Join me from afar in suffering well for the sake of the gospel church. That is how you entrust the faith from one generation to the next. It's not just word, and it's not just deed. It is word and deed side by side always. He's not just teaching him and saying, here's what you ought to do, and then going and doing something different. He's right there saying, hey, here's what you need to do. I'm going to show you how to do it. Just join me, whatever that may look like. Church, you want to know why the baton keeps getting dropped from one generation to the next? You stop saying those two words. Join me. That's it. Join me. Probably one of my um, favorite people in Scripture, this hidden hero is what I'd call her, is, uh, is a lady we read about in Acts chapter 9 named Tabitha. Um, how many of you guys ever hear Tabitha's name or story a little bit? Uh, not a whole lot said about her, her actual name. She also goes by Dorcas. Um, I'm sure she preferred Tabitha. Um, <laughs> so there's not a whole lot that's said about her in, in the scriptures, but the little bit that is said about her is just unbelievable, just powerful. I love this. Check this out. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. It says that she was a disciple of Jesus who was always doing good and helping the poor. She was a disciple of Jesus who was always doing good and helping the poor. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you at the end of your days? That person followed Jesus. Was always doing good, was always helping the poor and other people around her. She ends up passing away and Peter goes to visit her body and Check this out in verse 39. Here's what happens. When Peter goes to visit the body, all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made for them while she was still with them. And she's just giving her life away, making clothes and just helping all these different widows. You ever known a Tabitha in your life? Like someone who's not, not known for these insane, crazy gifts or anything like that, but, but someone who's known by the way that they love other people and give up their life for other people, for someone who's known for this invitational mentality to ministry that just says, join me. Whatever we're doing, just join me. We'll do it together. I'll serve you. I'll give my life for you. I'm thinking of a girl named Valerie. Some of you know her. You know exactly what I'm talking about. A number of years ago when I was doing um, refugee ministry at Northwest, um, Valerie came, started coming to the church. She's relatively new to, the, new to Dallas, and we're deeply invested with a lot of the refugee community living over in Vickery Meadow. Again, if you're new to Dallas, right up the street at 75 and Park Lane, there's about 10,000 international refugees that live out there that are trying to figure out how to do life here in Dallas once they've gotten here. They've come from war-torn areas legally, and they're here trying to figure out Dallas and how to do everything here. And so we had a huge investment over there in that area. Valerie was new to Dallas, and she was trying to figure out her place. And she came in and fell in love with the refugee community and didn't know exactly what else to do and how to serve them well. She never went to seminary, never had the Bible training or anything like that. And so she decided to move into Vickery Meadow by herself. Young single girl living in Vickery Meadow. Can you imagine that for a second? It's just not exactly the place that a whole lot of young singles want to come and live when they come to Dallas. Like the dating scene isn't exactly hot out there. It's very, very dangerous. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of theft. There's a lot of crime that goes on out there. And she's like, you know, the best way that I'm going to make a mark on this community is to go live 
in that community by myself. So she goes out there, and she's getting her feet wet, and she starts looking around trying to figure out how in the world am I going to serve these people. And she starts noticing, like, all these kids, they come home from school, and they're hanging out in the courtyard because mom and dad, they're trying to, you know, they're working as hard as they can at their minimum wage jobs trying to provide, and there's nothing else to do. They're hanging out in the courtyard, and they probably haven't eaten during the day because they have absolutely nothing in their apartments. And so Valerie goes to her home, and she buys all this bread and meat, and she goes out to the courtyard, and she just starts making sandwiches for all these kids. And you can imagine, like, hey, there's a girl making sandwiches in the courtyard. So, like, dozens of kids, like, they are flocking to that courtyard trying to eat that day. Winter comes around, and she notices these kids, they have no jackets. They don't have anything to keep warm. They're literally wearing um, just old running shorts and T-shirts. And it's, like, 28 degrees outside, and they've got absolutely nothing, and that's what they're going to school in. And so she organizes a coat drive with the church and provides coats and stuff for all of these different refugee families. She realizes when they're moving in, there's no furniture or anything around, and so she organizes uh, what we come to know as a free sale. Like, it's not a garage sale because we don't charge anything for it, but, like, people are donating all these awesome things, and, and she organizes them there at the community, and, like, she says, hey, the entire thing is free. It's a gift from our church to you. And all these families are coming out there, and they're like, now all of a sudden they have a bed to sleep in. Like, they have, they have things to sit on in their living room and things like that, and it's where we got the idea for our community sale, our, our community free sale that we do um, in the fall. Completely free to people in need. She's noticing a trend also as the kids are going off to school. Like they're walking from their apartment complex. And she's noticing all these little kids because they're different than the other kids. Uh, they're getting bullied and picked on and beaten up by a lot of the other kids that are, that are going to school. And she starts noticing this thing. And so, yeah, it's really, really early in the morning. But she gets up really early by herself. She meets the kids outside of their door and starts walking them to school to make sure, sure that they're going to get there safely. And then she goes back there, and she's, she's there at the school when school's ready to be let out, and she walks them back home to make sure that they get from school back into their apartment safely. George, I don't have to tell you this, but like by the time she got her uh, where, everything about her and, and she started doing a Bible study in her home, like people started flocking to hear what she had to say. And she opened up and started doing this Bible study in her home. And, and I'm not kidding you. Like, people started coming to faith left and right. It was ridiculous. Like every other week, she's coming and saying, hey, I got more kids that need to be baptized. We got more and more kids that need to be baptized. And it was just always happening. More and more people coming to faith because she had insane credibility in that entire community. I'll never forget one of my favorite days doing refugee ministry was when um, some of the leaders of the African Refugee Fellowship, which is this gathering of Burundian Rwandan refugees that we've been working with and helping them organize and do church together. They came to me after a long time of working with them. Val was working with them. A number of people were out there doing discipleship and, and investing in that community. And one of, the, one of these days, one of the leaders comes up and he says, Aaron, we, we want to change the name of our fellowship. And we've worked really, really hard to help establish and become this church, right, inside of the, inside of the other church. And so uh, we, we no longer want to be called African Refugee Fellowship. We want to be called African Missionary Fellowship. And I was like, why would you want to change your name? And they go, because the more we are learning about what God's done for us, the more we've understood that our gathering is not just about us. We can't just be about African refugees. We've got to be about African missionaries going into the world and making sure the gospel goes and continues to spread. Church refugees, brand new to Dallas, having absolutely 
nothing, having very, very little themselves, understand that the gospel and everything that God has done for us is not only about them. Church, that is how you go and you change the world. These refugees came together. They started getting their cars together and brand new refugees coming in and they're saying, hey, you don't know how to go shopping at the grocery store. Just join me and I'll teach you how to go shopping. You don't know how to speak English. I'm learning too. Why don't you join me? I'll help you learn English too. You don't know anything about the gospel that we believe here. Just join me. I'll teach you what little bit that we have. Church, that is how you go and you change the world. One person at a time in word and in deed, with a simple, simple little invitation, two words, join me. You don't know how to pray, just join me. You don't know how to study God's word, just, just join me, we'll do it together. It won't be perfect, I won't have it all figured out, just join me. You don't know how to share the gospel, it's going to get really, really messy, but join me, we'll figure it out together. You don't know how to do marriage, we're learning also, why don't you come and, and join me, we'll, we'll figure some things out together. Two little words can change the world. Join me. Let's pray together.